Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and with me in studio today to talk about all things heart-related, medically, not romantically, is Professor Robert Byrne, the Director of Cardiology at The Matter Private. Welcome to the studio. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm going to just get some information about your job and what you do, and then I have listener questions which range, which range from quite serious to, you know, which is better, butter or flora. Um, all things heart related. So I guess to for people listening to get a sense of like what cardiology is, I think I associate it with like heart attacks mainly just. But I saw a cardiologist with my grandmother in the matter private, actually. What was his name? He was a tall man with dark hair. Yeah, there's a few of those. There's a few, yeah, they all kind of look the same. Very tall, skinny man. Anyway, um, he kept saying, we'll get you to 90, Eileen, we'll get you to 90. Um, I was, he was, it's like, this is from when she was 80. And then, in fairness, she made it to 91. Yeah. So, yeah, he was great. And then one time I saw him in America at the luggage carousel with his family and I felt like such a creep because I felt like he thought I was stalking him. Anyway, um, so it's not just about... You don't just see a cardiologist when you have a heart attack. So can you talk to me about your job, how you got there, at what point in medical school you decided to go into cardio and I guess a bit about like what your day to day life is like as a cardiologist. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, cardiology is really a very varied uh, specialty. It kind of deals with uh, a variety of things heart related from just prevention of heart disease and offering people general advice on whether flora is better than butter or whatever and uh, trying to prevent them to have a heart attack uh, to dealing with then with people who have actual heart problems and we tend to think of those as problems with their heart arteries uh, maybe problems with the electrics of the heart there's a whole specialty subspecialty called electrophysiology which is just cardiologists who are specialised in heart rhythm disturbances then we have cardiologists who are more specialised in heart valve disease in patients with weakened heart muscle heart failure failure. We see a lot of blood pressure. Uh, so, uh, you know, in addition to the common or garden heart attack. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's quite a varied uh, specialty and I think that's what attracts people to it. The other thing is it's quite manual. So uh, a lot of the subspecialties involve actually doing procedures, uh, intervening, opening up blocked arteries, doing ablation procedures for uh, for heart rhythm abnormalities or implanting pacemakers or defibrillators uh, to treat heart, uh, heart rhythm disturbances. So it's... Uh, it's so in that way, are you a surgeon as well? Or do you yeah. have to train? To, like when you're in med school, do you go down the surgery route or 
medical, but you have to do a surgical bit because you're going to be operating on hearts. Yeah, it's a good point. So it's classically considered a medical specialty, but it's one of the more manual, if not the most manual specialty. So the overlap with surgery is quite a lot. And actually, in recent years, we've developed a whole uh, host of ways of treating heart disease that previously required you to have open heart surgery. And now we can do them through minimally invasive procedures in the groin or in the wrist. And actually, there's quite a a lot of overlap with the classic cardiac uh, surgeon um, uh, type of uh, procedures such that now, nowadays, cardiologists and heart surgeons work very closely together in teams called heart teams. So that's been a, a real development over the last 10 years. You might be aware for if you have a narrowing in your aortic valve, which is the main outflow valve in your heart, it used to be an open heart surgery. Uh, now, over the last 20 years, it's become a procedure where a small folded apart valve is put in through the groin, fed up to the heart and then expanded in the actual aortic valve without there, having to take out the old valve. That's mad. How, how do you see... Like how do you see how that's travelling up through the groin? Like Yeah, so you see it with x-ray. I mean, the story is is, uh, is fascinating. There's a, a French professor called Alain Cribier who did uh, the first uh, procedure uh, around about uh, 20 years ago and somebody who was very sick, not fit to have open heart surgery. There was no other options. And he said, well, why don't we try this? And a friend of his who had been developing the heart valve in experimental and in animal models, because that's how often you develop new technologies for the heart, said, listen, we have something. I'm not sure if it's ready for go live yet but seeing as this guy has no other option then uh, they did the case and uh, it went well and that uh, since then that whole field has developed we call it a TAVI which is uh, um, a minimally invasive implant uh, heart valve uh, implantation but it's been uh, one of the revolutions in cardiology over the last 20 years So does that mean that it's like less recovery time for the patient less time in hospital or do you still have to treat yourself like you've just had open heart surgery? No, I mean, what we call the upfront morbidity or, you know, the, the, the pain and the problems and the risk of complications uh, directly after the surgery are much reduced. In fact, nowadays you can go home the following day after having your aortic valve implanted, which 20 years ago would be something you couldn't have imagined. Normally it means... 24 hours in intensive care, then down to a step-down bed, then slow recovery and physiotherapy on a ward. And uh, if you do this uh, minimally invasive, then you can go home the next morning. There are plenty of people who also discharge, uh, you know, the patients at the end of the day after this procedure in certain countries. Now, I think that's pushing the envelope a little bit too Mm -hmm. far. But an overnight stay and then discharge the next day is common in in many countries. And is it... Is what's happening, you're kind of pushing a folded up valve through the damaged valve and kind of reinforcing it back out to its straw-like state? Uh yeah, that's what you're doing. I mean, that was a real paradigm shift as well, because people say, well, do you not need to take out the old heart valve before you put in a new one? And uh, the clever engineers who were working on this said, well, actually, no, we think the strength of the valve, if we put a scaffold around it, will be enough that when you expand it on the balloon, it stays expanded and it uh, pushes the old calcified degenerated valve to one side. And then the new valve sits in the middle and open and opens and closes 70 times per minute and uh, works completely fine and that's uh, what happened. So you're pushing it to one side or are you you're going in like I'm imagining that you put you get, you have a pipe like a hard pipe and you're pushing it through a sock so the sock is kind of all floppy and it stopped being a tube and you push the tube you push the pipe through it and then the sock is expanded back out to what it should be. 
Yeah, I mean, that's 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 a correct way of thinking about it. You go in through the old valve mm-hmm. and uh, the the old valve, which is kind of floppy, like you say, is just compressed back behind uh, this uh, scaffold in which the new valve is mounted and right. the new valve uh, then uh, works away inside the scaffold. So that's been a, a big uh, development in, in interventional cardiology. And it's an area where in a lot of countries, well, in some countries, the cardiac surgeon and the cardiologist do it together. They stand at the same table. They share the case. You know, in in many other countries, I suppose, it's mainly an interventional cardiology a procedure that cardiologists say, listen, we need to have a surgeon on standby, but it's, uh, it's, some, it's a procedure we're happy to do on our own. But we discuss all the cases in advance in a heart team and say, listen, here's someone who's young. They've no other comorbidities. They're generally well probably a conventional operation might still be the way to go in their case. And then here's someone who's a bit older. Uh, there's, you know, there's other considerations why you might not want them to have open heart surgery or general anaesthetic. And this is a case that'd be better suited for a cardiologist to do a Tavion. What are the, I guess, the, like, is are the heart issues that you see on a daily basis mostly genetic or mostly lifestyle Induced, like what can people do to avoid ever seeing you, or is are some people just unlucky with their genes? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I mean, without fudging the answer, the short uh, answer is it's mixed between uh, both. There are a couple of rare conditions that are uh, genetically uh, mediated, but most common are garden problems with heart valve abnormalities, with heart artery problems, are acquired uh, heart uh, disorders. So if you take coronary artery disease build up a cholesterol in your heart arteries that causes heart attacks or causes angina when you exert yourself if it's a more chronic uh, condition. That's something that's part genetics and part lifestyle. Um, And the genetic component varies. Maybe it might account for somewhere between 30 and 60% of it and the rest of it is is due to environmental factors like if you're a smoker, how high your blood cholesterol is, whether or not you have... uh, uh, high cholesterol, um, and so so there's a variety whether or not you have diabetes, uh, how much physical activity that you take. So it does make sense uh, to concentrate on the things that you can improve. Obviously, your genetic makeup, there's nothing much you could do about mm-hmm. it. Uh, but for example, if you have a high genetic risk, then it's even more important to double down on changing the things that you can change, like exercise is one of them. We say you should aim for at least 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise. And that means like you don't need to be going to spinning classes. Um, I mean, by all means, do if you're otherwise well, you enjoy it. But moderate intensity, a good brisk walk, a very gentle jog, a cycle. It should be enough to get up a light sweat. If mm-hmm. you're not getting up a light sweat, it's probably not doing much for your circulation. Okay. And can it be 150 minutes in one go? Or do you prefer it to be 30 minutes over five days kind of? Yeah, I mean, it's preferably it should be spread out. Uh, ideally, you might do uh, 30 minutes, five days per week. Uh, then there's some people who say, listen, that's just not realistic. I can't do that. And you could say, well, maybe try 25 minutes of higher intensity exercise three times per week. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, it, it just depends, I suppose, on your stage of life, how busy you are with work, family, kids, uh, you know, how much exercise you can do. I mean, a very useful way to get your exercise is if you can commute into work by walking or cycling, that's obviously that's something that you have to do every day, mm-hmm. so you can uh, you can build it into your uh, routine. 
I mean, Dublin has its issues in terms of cycling and cross Also today, cycling. like you'd be, there's no job that you could possibly do arriving to work, having commuted in today, you'd be soaked. Yeah. Um, on that, I guess, without delving to, oh, two questions before I go to that. One question, sorry. My husband has very high cholesterol. His father died of, now he's under a cardiologist, right? but his father died at 45 um, of heart related issues all of his family have high cholesterol his brother is a vegan Noel doesn't drink he doesn't eat red meat like he has a very very healthy lifestyle and for someone who's like 35 he saw a cardiologist and they were like okay this is probably genetic like try for three months change your diet completely exercise do all that we'll check your cholesterol again and then we'll see so he did all that and it was still as high so they put him on a statin is some cholesterol genetic like we cannot see a reason in his diet why it would possibly be this high. Yeah. So there's definitely a genetic uh, predisposition to having high cholesterol. There's a subset of people with uh, familial hypercholesterolemia uh, that tend to have very high cholesterol levels and have first degree relatives who have uh, heart disease at a very young age. So he might well fit into that Mm -hmm. uh, category. Um, But there's a spectrum and while some people might not fit the criteria for familial hypercholesterolemia, hypercholesterolemia, they'll still have uh, a genetic predisposition to having a higher cholesterol uh, 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 values than the average person. Um, So I would say as a rule of thumb, like diet, uh, having a, it depends how good your diet is to start with, but if you've got a reasonably uh, balanced diet and you really double down on low cholesterol stuff, you can probably expect to see a 15 or 20% change in your cholesterol. But if you've got very high levels and the doctor's advising you to get it down by 50 or 60%, that's not going to be possible without taking uh, medications. And the other thing to realise is what's a good value for one person may not be a good value for the other person. So someone might say, oh, well, I was out with the lads there playing around a golf and I told them this, my cholesterol was this and, and uh, his uh, doctor had uh, had suggested that was a fine value for him and the next guy would say, oh no, my doctor told me that was way too high. And that's because doctors make an overall assessment of your risk, taking into the other factors like family history, like, like blood pressure, like diabetes mm-hmm. or whatever. And it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. For example, sometimes you'll see someone with a heart attack and they say, I've come into hospital with a heart attack. I was told all my life that my cholesterol was a bit borderline, but it was grand. Mm-hmm. And now you're telling me that it's way too high and you're saying, well, you've proven that for you it's too high because it's building up in your heart arteries. And now we don't, it's not a normal cholesterol we're interested in. It's a better than normal cholesterol. We want you to have a lower cholesterol than 95% of people on the street so you don't have another uh, heart attack, if that makes sense. And that is to say, before he went on the statin, he had like scans and investigations and like checking what was the story with the heart. Also to have a baseline to see if it's going to disimprove so that it wasn't just a random number. Um, So what do you do in your personal life because of the job that you do and the things that you see? obviously maybe exercising or the things you do to keep your heart healthy based on the evidence that you have. Yeah, I mean, I think you pay pay attention to the sensible things. I mean, uh, exercise is one thing to try to build in uh, to your lifestyle. If you have a busy lifestyle, you can work it into your commute fine. Otherwise, you just have to find uh, time to do it. Uh, keeping an eye on your diet. I mean, there's a lot of information on fad diets. Um, there's been quite a lot of studies on diets. And from a heart point of view, the evidence suggests that the best diet is a Mediterranean type of diet, which is a balanced diet, a lot of things in moderation. Of course, more, if if you like to eat uh, uh, meat and fish, more white meat, chicken, fish, uh, red meat, maybe once a week, 
cook with olive oil rather than with uh, with uh, animal oils, uh, nuts, seeds, plenty of fresh fruit and vegetables, as little processed food as possible, and uh, maybe occasional uh, glass of alcohol. Um, so, you know, fad diets don't seem to have the evidence behind them that Mediterranean type diets have from a cardiology point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, you know, a sensible uh, balanced diet, the exercise, um, you know, take measures to manage uh, stress, to manage workload, make sure you get adequate amount of sleep. And I think the two other things are know what your blood pressure is and know what your cholesterol level is. Those are two variables that very tightly link to the risk of heart disease. The classic teaching is once you get to the age of 40, you should know what your blood pressure is and what your cholesterol is. So if you're listening and you're over the age of 40 and you don't know what your blood pressure or cholesterol is, go and have that checked. Correct. And uh, then what, check it like every 12 months or six months? or So it depends. So maybe your cholesterol panel comes back and says, listen, uh, and bear in mind when you're looking at cholesterol panels, we're interested in two things. We're interested in your good cholesterol, which is protective, and your bad cholesterol, which is damaging. They're so what, LDL and... Uh, so HDL is the good one and LDL, LDL is, is the bad, bad one. one. And you're really kind of looking at the ratio between the two. And let's say you have a really good HDL cholesterol, which is high, very protective, and your LDL cholesterol looks good. I mean, it's probably you're saying, listen, I'm lucky genetically and with the things I'm doing, I'm predisposed to having a low cholesterol. Maybe your GP says, that's fine, we'll check it again in three to five years or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, Maybe you have a borderline cholesterol where they say, listen, there's, there's some measures are necessary, come back and have a check in six or 12 months. Um, but I think you should know what your cholesterol is. And I think it's good even to know what the values are. Like for the average person on the street who doesn't have heart disease, we say just focus on your LDL cholesterol, which is your bad cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have established heart disease and uh, you're young or middle-aged, probably less than 3.0 is where you'd like it to be optimally. Now, lots of people in the population will have it between 3.0, 3.5. It's only over 4 in the absence of any established heart disease that we say, listen, that's a high, bad cholesterol. But I think it's good to know the numbers. Uh, same with blood pressure. Probably most of us know like 120 over 80 is a normal blood pressure to have to strive for. And if your doctor's checking your blood pressure, then it's 140 over 90 is the cutoff where we say, listen, above that, it's high. Mm -hmm. So know what your blood pressure is and know what your cholesterol is. Um, what are certain symptoms? Obviously, we know if you get a shooting pain up your left arm, like you're into urgent cardiac care, wherever. Um, but what are other symptoms that you know about that people should never ignore? Yeah, like I think the cardinal symptom not to ignore is chest discomfort. Don't even use the word pain. Like mm -hmm. the amount of people who come in and say, you know, come in maybe with a heart attack and the symptoms have been grumbling on for a few days and I said, have you any chest pain? No, but I've had discomfort in my chest for the last few days. So it's a vague discomfort. It's normally in the middle of your chest. So people mm -hmm. think, should it be on my left side? Should it be going down to my right, down my left arm? Maybe, but actually it's usually behind the breastbone, a vague type of uh, discomfort that may or may not go to your jaw or your left arm. Some people can have a type of an epigastric discomfort that comes on uh, and it can be quite hard for them to tease it out from indigestion, you know. And kind of like heartburn or gas or something. Kind of a heartburn or gas and that can be a challenge for patients and when the doctor sees the patient it can be a challenge as well. Of course we can run an ECG, do a blood test to see if there's any signs of heart injury and that's uh, how, how we handle it. But certainly a discomfort in your chest that wasn't there that comes on uh, rather uh, abruptly is something that should be investigated and it mightn't be a good idea to leave it till the morning, particularly if it's severe and if you're in doubt, I mean, you know, day or night is the 
time to uh, to get help. Of course, you can call 999 if you're sufficiently concerned and the ambulance team have protocols, they'll send someone out. I mean, the, one of the fantastic developments now is that all of the National Ambulance Service uh, ambulances come equipped with 12 DCGs wherever you are in the country, however remote the ambulance team will come to you, they'll hook you up to 12 DCG. They'll say, doesn't look like you're having a heart attack, we'll take you into the nearest emergency department for a checkup or no, you're having a heart attack and we need to go straight, not just to any hospital, but a hospital that's 24-7 ability to open up uh, heart arteries and you'll be brought straight day or night into a cath lab suite, have an emergency angiogram, whatever time of the day or night it is. If there's a blockage, it'll be open. So that's what we call primary PCI and that's been a real a revolution in cardiac care over the last uh, 15 years or so. We used to give these clot-busting drugs mm-hmm. and we still do. So if you're out in in West Donegal or you're then uh, in West Mayo, uh, it, there's quite a detailed calculation that goes in when the ambulance person sees you. Well, they say, can I get this person to a hospital in order that they'll be on a cath lab table and have their artery opened within 90 to 120 minutes. And if they say yes, they blue light it and they'll bring it to wherever the local uh, hospital is. If you're in Donegal now, they'll bring it to Derry, which is a fantastic development that's uh, really impacted on the treatment of heart disease in Donegal. If you're in West Mayo, they'll look at bring you down to uh, Galway or whatever. And if you're not, they say no, with the best will in the world, we're not going to be able to get you there. Then they get, still give the clot-busting drug, which was the more old-fashioned treatment for it heart attack, and, stays, and still has a role, and it buys you time. So it's so this, the way the services have developed, they're evidence-based, they're based on clinical trials. We know internationally what's best practice. And in Ireland, since around about 2013, it was adopted on a national scale, which has, uh, which has been a brilliant development, saved countless lives, and saved uh, countless people from, from living with chronic weakened heart muscles. I, I I don't really know much about the mechanics or operations of a heart attack. In my head, it's sort of like the heart goes into spasm. Um, and some, I've heard that you can go into a hospital like days after a heart attack and and a doctor can say, you have had a heart attack, that like it can be seen. How, how do you track that? Is it like scar tissue on the heart or how do you track a heart attack? Yeah, so it's a good question. So what people call a heart attack, it, it actually can mean different things to different people. So, I mean, there's two things to consider. Um, one is what other people might call a coronary thrombosis. A clot forms in one of your heart arteries. It abruptly reduces blood to the heart muscle. The heart muscle is starved of oxygen and nutrients and it dies. And that's a typical heart attack. The symptoms can be quite vague from this classic chest pain to someone collapsing dramatically on the street uh, to someone with more indigestion type of chest pain. And it might be that you don't recognise it as signs of a heart attack or some people don't have any symptoms at all. They can have a silent heart attack. And when when they go in to see the doctor for a checkup, they'll do an ECG or an echo test and say, hang on, there's an area of the heart muscle that's not working right. You've had a heart attack at some stage. Okay, yes. So so, so it is possible. Then there's the other type of an event, which is is like a cardiac arrest. Some people might think of that as as a heart attack. And that's when you have circulatory collapse. Unfortunately, it happens. People, sometimes young people on sports fields, gets a lot of attention. Uh, and that's where someone's heart uh, stops working, stops contracting in a coordinated manner. Usually uh, there's uh, a condition called ventricular fibrillation, which is this chaotic uh, contraction of the heart muscle. 
uh, and it's not coordinated enough to build up any blood pressure, the circulation stops, the person collapses, and if nothing happens, then unfortunately they pass away within a short number of minutes. And that's where the ambulance service has to get there quickly. Every uh, minute of delay is associated with uh, you know, a, a 10% reduction or, or more in terms of uh, surviving of it. And there's a chain of survival. That's why we have uh, first responders around the country. I mean, I was so out So you want to be starting like CPR and defibrillator. You were out for going? You, you know, I was uh, out uh, visiting my father on, uh, on Sunday and somebody uh, uh, collapsed on the street outside the restaurant he was in and uh, straight away... Uh, you know, we were able to put a call through the ambulance uh, service. The ambulance uh, service was dispatched. But before they'd arrived, even a first responder was on the scene, which is a local uh, person who might cover, say, Malahide or Port Marnock, where this was. And they'll be on the scene with kind of basic equipment, uh, stethoscope, blood pressure, monitor, allows me to do some monitoring of the patient before the ambulance service even arrives. Then the ambulance uh, hooks up to a 12 lead ECG and you can see straight away, is this a heart attack or not? So mm-hmm. the care that we provide where someone uh, collapses um, has gotten much better. Obviously, it's easier in Dublin or in an urban centre than in remote areas. But even remote areas, you'll be aware, a lot of the GAA clubs will have defibrillators on site and they'll have someone on call and a pager, who, a first responder who'll know to go and get the defibrillator and come to the scene. And, and come to the scene. I did a paediatric first aid course when my daughter was born and they said... The first thing you need to do wherever you are is know where your defibrillator is. Uh, so I thought that was good um, advice. Just taking a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Rockwell Financial. Rockwell Wealth Management are amazing at extracting wealth from your business in a tax efficient way. Whether it's pensions, protection, investment, exit strategies, succession planning, anything like that, they are the ones to go to. They have a free one-to-one consultation for Basically listeners. So ring them up, tell them you listen to Basically and they will give you that offer of a free consultation. Rockwell Wealth Management. Go for it. Your heart works 24-7. So if you're worried about chest pain, palpitations or breathlessness, it's really reassuring to know that expert heart care works 24-7 too. The Matter Private Network in Dublin is the only private hospital in Ireland offering urgent cardiac care all day, every day. That's weekends, bank holidays, even through the night. It's a unique service for patients who are worried about their heart and want to be seen quickly by heart experts at one of Ireland's leading hospitals for cardiology care. If you're worried about your heart, remember this number, 1800 247 999. You'll speak directly to a cardiac specialist nurse at Matter Private and they'll talk to you about your symptoms. And if you need to come to hospital, you'll get a thorough cardiac assessment as soon as you arrive. If you need treatment or a procedure, the cardiology team will work out the most appropriate plan for you. Even if you need treatment the same day, this will be arranged immediately. For urgent cardiac care at Matter Private Network Dublin, call 1800 247 999 or visit matterprivate.ie for more information. This is how it's always been. Double Love is a podcast in which we explore the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join me, Anna Carey. And me, Karen Moynihan. As we revisit one of the maddest series of books ever written, or ghostwritten. If you ever read about Elizabeth and Jessica, the perfect blonde Wakefield twins, then you might enjoy listening to us absolutely tearing them to shreds. Affectionately, of course. Of course. And even if you didn't, there's still plenty of drama, kidnapping, stolen boyfriends and school dances to entertain you. Find us on the Headstuff Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Okay, I'm going to get some listener questions. Um, Butter or Flora? 
Yeah. So um, it depends on your risk. So and it depends on what your cholesterol panel is. If you've uh, if you've got a perfectly normal cholesterol uh, panel and you eat butter, I think that's fine. Um, if you've got an abnormal uh, cholesterol panel and you're looking for easy wins where you can get the cholesterol back into the normal range, or maybe you need to get the cholesterol in the better than normal range because of other risk factors, then. Uh, are an important factor are called plant sterols. Mm-hmm. Now, plant sterols are only in certain type of margarines, so like Flora Proactive or Benicol, those are the ones that you might know about. They have plant sterols which might reduce your cholesterol by 10 or 15%. So there's definitely a role for them. Now, if your doctor says, actually, to be honest, that's not enough, you need to go on a cholesterol pill, mm-hmm. uh, then you could probably say, well, listen, uh, you don't need to bother with the uh, plant sterols with the Flora Proactive, just go straight for the cholesterol pill. So actually, the guidelines in the UK say if you need to take a cholesterol pill, then forget about the spreads, you know, just go and take the cholesterol pill. Um, so the, the other natural substance we're thinking about is called red yeast rice extract, and that has a natural substance in it which lowers your cholesterol, and you can get it in health food stores. I mean, the only wrinkle, some people say, listen, I don't want to go on a cholesterol pill. What can I do? Well, plant sterols in the spreads uh, or, the, or, or the dairy drinks or red yeast rice extract is another thing, which seems to have a, a reasonable uh, effect on lowering cholesterol. You might get another 10 or 15 percent out of that. What are you putting that like? Do you just take that by the spoonful or dilute it in something? Yeah, you can mix it in with your food um, or, or, or whatever uh, whatever you want. Now, the only wrinkle in it is the active ingredient is exactly the same as what's in the cholesterol pills that you take. You know, so some people say, listen, I prefer a natural approach and they use that. And other people say, well, really, I don't if it's the same thing, it's more convenient for me to take a cholesterol pill so they take a cholesterol pill. Okay. Have you seen an increase in people presenting with heart issues as a result of COVID, either the illness or the vaccine? Um, so, yes, is the uh, short answer to that. I mean, the vaccine first, uh, that was associated with a very small uh, risk of myocarditis, which is an inflammation in the heart muscle, uh, which was related to the mRNA type of uh, vaccines, uh, was generally rare in our group, which would have 25 to 30 cardiologists. We might have seen like one or, or two cases, but uh, very rare. Slight predilection for younger males, we think. Uh, and they could get quite sick quite quickly. But thankfully, it was very, very rare. Um, in relation, uh, illness, heart disease related to COVID-19 was much more common. Initially in the pandemic, when we were all overwhelmed with information, there was a thought that uh, COVID-19 illness, even a relatively mild one, could result in subtle scarring of your heart muscle, which might be a risk factor for developing weakened heart muscle over time. Now, we did a study called the Satanta study where we went to a couple of GPs that we work with and we say, listen, don't send us the patients who you're worried about and have long-term symptoms after COVID. Just send us anyone who's had COVID and we're going to run them through a detailed MRI scanner and hook them up to ECGs and do a whole series of tests to see is there an underlying risk of uh, heart muscle uh, scarring in the community after COVID? And the short answer is we didn't find uh, a very high burden. But we all know patients who have long COVID, right? Yes. Patients who have had post... Uh, uh, um, and tachycardia from... Post-COVID-19 it. syndrome. And I think the most common thing that you see is this inappropriate tachycardia. It's related, I think, to an autonomic dysfunction. I mean, plenty of people think it's due to an autonomic dysfunction. Your heart rate runs a little bit faster. So you say, listen, normally I can do this on an exercise bike and my heart rate's 
130 and now when I do the same thing it's 150. So it seems to be related to autonomic dysfunction and what we really learned about COVID is in a proportion of people it causes a profound deconditioning. It just runs down the battery, uh, runs down your uh, your level of physical fitness. They come to us, we do some basic heart checks, say listen the heart muscle is not damaged, now it's an exercise programme to try to get your conditioning back. back. Yeah. I had bradycardia before I had COVID and now my heart rate is normal. So bradycardia being a slow heart rate yeah. and now my heart rate is normal. So I think if I had a normal heart rate, I would have yes. tachycardia. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a common one. Uh, it's a common one that we saw. Uh, but thankfully, this wave, there was editorials in very prominent medical journals saying, listen, there's going to be a whole, once the COVID thing passes, there's going to be a wave of people with weakened heart muscles and that never uh, materialised, thankfully. Um, high blood pressure all of a sudden, age 47. Could this be perimenopause related? Um uh, it could be, yeah, it could be. And uh, COVID was also something that caused people's blood pressure to go off. So people who had reasonable blood co- pressure control before COVID, uh, we also saw uh, that their control deteriorated after COVID. But uh, high blood pressure that comes on all of a sudden is something that uh, requires further investigations. For doctors, alarm bells start to go off. You say, listen, this is a high blood pressure that developed quite uh, suddenly. There's a set uh, number of tests that we work through. Usually it's nothing uh, to be worried about. But what we're looking for is hormonal causes of blood pressure, which are often less related to the menopause, uh, but some other glands in the body, the adrenal glands, which give out uh, hormones which can cause fluctuations in your blood pressure. So uh, most of the time, uh, high blood pressure that comes on uh, is what we call essential hypertension. So it's just high blood pressure because of the society we live in, the Western world, like the rule of thumb is 40% of people in their 40s have high blood pressure, 50% of people in their 50s have high blood pressure, 60%. 60, right, okay. But most people don't know about it and those who know about it don't treat it uh, adequately. And uh, the most common someone in their uh, mid to late 40s who has blood pressure, it's probably the blood pressure has been creeping along. Every year older you get your blood pressure might go up by about half a point or a quarter of a point and then you reach a tipping point where it just starts to manifest itself. So in relation to that question, it's probably still just regular uh, essential hypertension. But if it does come on suddenly, then there's a few other tests that need to be done. So this one, maybe not. you might not be able to comment personally, but why is it so stringent to meet the criteria for PCSK9 inhibitor? I can hardly walk with cramps. Okay, yes, that's a good question. It's, yeah. uh, it's Okay, I'll try to give a short answer. So uh, in uh, patients whose cholesterol level is too high for their condition, um, maybe they've had a heart attack. And like I was saying earlier, someone has had a heart attack, we say, I don't care what your cholesterol was really beforehand. It was too high for you because it caused you to have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. After the heart attack, we need to get it down in the better than normal range. So do you remember I told you uh, that the average healthy person on the street might aim for a bad cholesterol of less than 3.0? 3. If you've had a heart attack, you should be aiming for 1.4. So it's significantly lower. And uh, the first way to get there is by these statin medications. Now, mm-hmm. a proportion of people on statins, albeit a small proportion, will have muscle cramps and they can't tolerate the statins. And we have four or five different statins and you work your way through them and if they can't tolerate any of them then the only other option are these things called PCSK9 inhibitors which are a new very effective way of lowering cholesterol but very expensive. Mm -hmm. So the HSE have brought in certain criteria to say listen we'll only uh, uh, pay for PCSK9 inhibitor therapy if you meet these criteria. So the the criteria are stringent. The question is a really good point because I think you know we need to lobby and we are lobbying, lobbying 
uh, payers to say, listen, the criteria in Ireland compared with other countries like Germany, where I worked for a long time, are too stringent and we need to improve access to these expensive uh, treatments. Now, of course, the pharmaceutical industry probably uh, could uh, show some flexibility on their side as well. And some of the new medications are pitched at a price point which is very, very high and puts a strain on health mm-hmm. uh, care systems. And of course, they say we need to make these margins for our research and development. So otherwise, it's not worth our while developing these new ther- therapies. The, you know, it's probably a bit of give and take. Uh, this is where capitalism meets healthcare. Um, should we be getting screened for calcification of arteries? And if so, at what age? So that's a very good question. And it gets to the fact that the onset of heart disease can be a little bit insidious. The symptoms can be a bit vague. And that's where kind of screening programs come in. So the short answer is uh, it it, it does make sense. There's a coordination. If you go to your doctor and say, listen, I'm worried about heart disease, there's a few basic things they can do. They check your cholesterol, they check your blood pressure, they see if you're a smoker, they see what age you are and they see what gender it is. You can put it into a program. What if says, you were ever a smoker? Uh, that's, uh, yeah, if you were ever a smoker, it's interesting. You always will have an increased risk of lung disease. But as regards your risk of heart disease, if you're off cigarettes for uh, about a year, the risk of uh, a heart attack falls back almost to that of someone who was a non-smoker. The reason being that cigarette smoke causes the blood to become quite sticky. So it's a risk factor in the acute phase for thrombosis or clot forming in the heart arteries. But once you're off cigarettes, then that risk can fall quite quickly. So at least we always tell people it's never too late to give up smoking from a heart point of view. Back to the screening question, um, the doctor will uh, plug your uh, data into a, a risk predictor program. There's a couple of them out there, one more used in the UK, one more used in continental Europe and say, listen, your 10 year risk of having a serious heart adverse event is less than 5%. There's no further screening in, in, in uh, indicated. Your 10 year risk is greater than 10%. You're in the high risk uh, 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 category and there's some tests that you should consider or you're in the grey area with maybe a 5 to 10% uh, risk uh, or a 25 to 7.5% risk and there's where these kind of calcium scores and CT scans of your heart arteries uh, come in and they help to say are you more in the lower end of that risk spectrum or more in the higher end of the risk spectrum. CT calcium score or a CT car- coronary angiogram is another big breakthrough in cardiology. I've mentioned a few of them today. Uh, but the technology now has evolved to the fact that you can do a whole scan of your heart in a matter of seconds. Um, and what previously stopped us from doing that in a widespread manner was you give a reasonably high dose of radiation to get the okay. answer. And, you know, long-term radiation is a risk for uh, for cancers, even though the risk is very, very low. But now the sequences and the scanners have got so good, it's a very low risk. And from the age of about 50 on, you could make a case for wide, for more widespread use of calcium scores or CT coronary angiograms. And it's something that we're seeing people, patients inform themselves online. They come and say, listen, I think I'm in this intermediate risk category. I'd like a CT scan. And uh, we have uh, no reason not to offer it to them. I think it's something we should be doing more of and we will be doing more of. But is this like, are those people private patients who are paying for it? Or can you just publicly say, I want this? Yeah, I mean, you can say it uh, publicly. Um, the uh, the country there's a waiting is, list. Yeah, it's a, there's a waiting list. Like, there's a country is in the process of uh, making more CT scanners available and cardiac CT scanners uh, available at the moment. If you want to have it, most of the time, even if you've got health insurance, you have to pay because the health insurance companies don't cover, cover. CT scans. Now, again, we've been lobbying them to say this is standard of care in many countries, and it is changing uh, slowly. 
but, but uh, you know, a CT scan costs, uh, you know, of the order of between 500 and 700 euros. So it's not, uh, it's not a cheap test. Um, uh, but uh, that's, I suppose, how things are at the moment. Um, I have badly swollen ankles. Does that mean something bad for my heart? Yeah, so swollen ankles is an interesting one. And um, there's a couple of things to think about in swollen ankles. Is it on one side or is it on two sides? So if it's on one side, we're worried about something, a, a clot in the leg. You've heard about it and people who come off long distance planes, maybe they're sitting around, the blood's not flowing, the legs, they get a clot. In people who have uh, swollen ankles on both sides, uh, then we're, there's two thoughts we have. One is, is it due to weakness of the heart? Or the second thought, is it due to the pressure in the blood vessels being a little bit lower because you're lacking protein? So uh, there's a, uh, you know, a blood test and an ultrasound test of the heart uh, can clarify uh, which of those two it is. Uh, I have high blood pressure since I was 22. Why did I get it so young? I was very active, slim, good diet, 44 now, still on medication. Yeah. So there's a proportion of people with essential hypertension, which means there's not a secondary cause for high blood pressure, uh, like uh, hormone imbalance coming from your adrenal glands or a narrowing in your renal arteries or a narrowing in your main aortic artery. These can be secondary causes of blood pressure, but a proportion of people who do everything right still get uh, high blood pressure at a young age. And the most important thing is to pick it up, because if that had gone undetected, uh, for 20 years until someone was in their 40s, then considerable damage could already have been done. Um, so uh, I think the fact uh, that it was picked up in the 20s, that's uh, that's very important. Um, my mum died at 38 of heart failure. Is there any checks beside the usual that our children should do, that us as her children should do? Um, we kind of answered that, did we? Yeah, I mean, know your cholesterol, know your blood pressure. And if there's sufficient uh, concern about heart artery disease, then something like a calcium score or a CT, uh, CA could be considered. My God, we have so, so many questions here, but I'll finish on this one. I recently lost 60 kgs. Could I have caused long-term damage being morbidly obese for so long? Uh, yeah, obesity puts a lot of strain on the heart. Now, losing 60 kilograms uh, is... Uh, fantastic. I mean, that's that's a very large uh, degree of weight loss. Uh, possibly some uh, surgical measures were done to assist with the weight loss uh, there. Of course, there are medications uh, out there, some of which you might uh, have heard about in the lay media um, that uh, lead to appetite suppression and uh, and weight loss. But uh, 60 kilogram weight loss is a lot. Um, the uh, Having those extra 60 kilograms on can do put strain on your heart I mean imagine but does it put strain on your heart that is like damage that's irreversible or now that she is in a smaller lighter body the heart is not under so much pr- is it like when you take away you know like your tyres are kind of flat when you have so much weight in the car but then you take it out and the tyres are grand yeah so um, that could well be the case I mean uh, certainly an ECG and an ultrasound uh, or echo test of the heart would be the uh, right way to go. It may well have been that uh, they got by without having undue strain on the heart. And now if you did an echo and an ECG, everything looks good. Then you say, fine, great, you're, uh, you you got away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also uh, lost a significant amount of weight um, and had a surgery afterwards and had ruptured hematoma. And my surgeon said that basically because I was overweight, my my veins and arteries ended up being kind of like milkshake straws, you know, the thicker straws, and that they didn't go back to like smaller ones once I lost the weight. And so now I'm more likely to get like ruptured hematomas and like my veins are a bit fucked from it. Yeah, Um 
Yeah, that's an interesting one. But I, I mean, you could imagine there's a, a certain uh, rationale to that. But most of the time, uh, like your body will adapt to the new weight. I mean, your surgeon's right to point out that all of our bodies, they have this, they're, they're pinned to this thing called homeostasis, where, it, where it's very difficult to move yourself either above or below the weight uh, that you were. And uh, it can take quite a long time for your heart, for your body to get adapted to this new weight. But I think, you know, I wouldn't say that's for the rest of your life. I, I mean, I think that will, your body will eventually adapt to your new weight same as for that uh, listener who was with the question you know Okay well I have endless questions but I um, is there anything else that you think we should know before we finish there and maybe we'll get you back in another time to to answer more of the questions Yeah no I mean I'm very happy to answer those questions I think um, I actually have one final one Yeah go ahead Your life your lifestyle like your private life your recreation life are you on call is it is it is being a cardiologist like one of those jobs where like you have to go in in the middle of the night your patients that you operated on at two o'clock in the afternoon is now having a something like is it a difficult work-life balance yeah I think uh, cardiology is one of those uh, specialties where it attracts people who are willing to put up with these kind of work-life balance issues and most people will live quite close to the hospital that they work in in case they have to go in uh, quickly for a patient uh, that they treated earlier who's run into a problem uh, same with uh, surgeons. Uh, of course, uh, centres that offer this primary PCI, then the cardiologists have to go in uh, for patients who are brought in the middle of the night with a heart attack. So interventional cardiology, cardiology in general, uh, it is a specialty where you where the work-life balance is an issue and mm-hmm. you have to take measures. You can't finish uh, at five o'clock and go home and have dinner. Like No, I mean, listen, of course, you work in a group, you have an on-call rota, you know when your weekend's are on, you know that next weekend you're off and that someone else is uh, is is, uh, is covering and has the phone or the bleep or whatever. So, um, you know, it's a matter of organisation, but cardiology, I suppose, would have a name for being one of those specialties where the uh, work-life uh, balance issues uh, need to be managed actively, you know. Um, I mean, the last thing to say, I suppose, is the quality of care in Ireland in terms of the training of our doctors, I think, uh, you know, we can hear a lot of uh, negative uh, information on healthcare systems in Ireland, and we know there's issues with two-tier systems and access to care. But I would say that the general quality of the training—I mean, I can speak for cardiology—when uh, you look at the uh, graduates, the Irish graduates who train up to be consultants, uh, the the quality of uh, of their training is very, very high partially because our training systems mandate us to go away. So they say, listen, you've done a very good uh, training scheme here. So you go to medical school for six years, you do general medical training for two to three years, you do basic cardiology for four years, and then you do interventional cardiology maybe for two or three years. So you can imagine all that um, uh, adding up. Uh, But uh, I think it produces doctors who are uh, very well trained and a good uh, uh, asset uh, to to the healthcare system and they compare very favorably I think with with other countries um and I, I think it's uh it's it's important uh that we acknowledge that I mean the healthcare system in Ireland has uh, has its issues and uh, we hear about those um on a daily basis but there's lots of success stories there's those access to the transcatheter heart valves that I told you about there's the national primary PCI service there's uh coordinated community care for heart failure for risk factor modification so uh, so there has been really a lot of positive developments over the last 10, 10 to 15 years, particularly in the cardiac area that I would know best. I like hearing those things because we do hear so many negative stories 
particularly about the HSE. We're recording this when the Children's Hospital is in the news again. Um, so it's great to hear that there are developments. And because I think cardiac care is something that people hope to never have to deal with. Um, but when it does come up, it's like, oh God, we know this is urgent. You don't want to have like a 14 month waiting list for something that's to do with your heart. So um, thank you so much for coming in and for enlightening us and answering those questions. And I'm sure we will see you again. Very well. Professor Robert Byrne, Director of Cardiology at the Matra Private Group and Professor of Cardiovascular Research at RCSI University. Thank you so much for joining us. That is another episode of Basically. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahalo Gara. We are produced by Julie Hassett and we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. See you next week. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.